Good evening. Welcome again to Sunday night service here at Moody Church. We're glad you're worshiping with us tonight. As we continue, we're in week four tonight of our series called Wake Up Call. As we look at the book of Malachi, which was to be a wake up call to God's people. And we think of how it can apply to our lives today. So I'd encourage you to grab a Bible or open up your phone to the book of Malachi, which is the very last book of the Old Testament, as we're going to be at the end of chapter two and chapter three tonight. Well, there's certain people that have a very different reaction to things than you or I would. And when we see different people reacting to something very differently than how we would, it's natural then to cause assumptions about those people, to assume that they think of things different than you or I. When I think of of this, one of the easiest examples in my mind is when I think of a sports coach. Most coaches, as you watch them on the sideline, it is obvious based on their body language if the game is close or not. And it's obvious if their team is winning by a lot or if the team is losing by a lot. It's very obvious just in how their mannerisms are and the way in which they communicate. But then maybe you've noticed if you watch sports, there's a few coaches spread throughout who are very stoic who if you were to pan a camera on them, you would have no idea the score of the game, when in the game it is, or how their team was doing. And because their reaction is so different than most people, and different certainly from how I would coach if I were a coach, because of that, it's easy to assume things about them. Because their response to the situation they're in is very different than how you or I would react. This is true of how we treat people, and this is also true and how we think of God. If God responds in a way that's different from how I would respond, it's easy for then me to assume things about God. But maybe just his response is saying something different and maybe my assumptions about him are wrong. Tonight we're going to look at a passage in Malachi, the last ver- the last verse of chapter 2 is where we're going to start. And God's people have made some assumptions about God because of his response, or as we're going to see, almost a lack of response to things going on around them. But we're going to see that their assumptions are wrong. So Malachi chapter 2, if you've joined us, you remember these are called rhetorical disputations, where, where each section starts with kind of a rhetorical argument back and forth within an explanation about it. And so we have this argument back and forth in chapter 2, starting in verse 17, which says this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So there's that first phrase, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, let's just pause there. What does it mean that God is wearied? Because other sections of scripture teach of God who does not weary. Is this contradicting itself? No, it's not saying here a statement on God's character, that God is breaking down or God is getting tired. Rather, it's, it's an expression similar to an expression that we would use today. If someone keeps saying something, be like, I'm, I'm tired of hearing you talk about that. We're not saying that we are literally sleepy and need to go to bed, but that we are being moved to exasperation. 
that we're done with someone saying something about us that we know is not true. We're tired of it. We're sick of something. It's a similar expression to be weary of something. And so they ask, how have we done this to God? And there's two statements that are made, which are kind of summary statements of the character of the people, probably not reflecting exact phrases, but this is the sentiment of the people of the time. The first one is this, is that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. What they're saying is things here, things for them were were degenerating quickly and God was doing nothing. And they said, because it doesn't seem like God is interfering, it's as if God is accepting and approving of the way in which people are living. It's almost as if God delights in the wickedness that is around us. This is a a statement of frustration. There is deep emotion felt in this. It also is a statement of irony as well. And as this is a statement of emotion, the the second kind of complaint is very straightforward. A call for response with this simple question, where is the God of justice? Where is this God of justice? See, at least in the people's complaints, they did understand something about God, that, that he is a God of justice. See, it's important for us to not major in on certain parts of God's character that we just neglect or disengage with others. But scripture teaches that God is a God of justice. And if you've ever been the victim of wrongdoing, if you've ever had something done to you, if you've ever gone and seen the suffering that's in this world, we should rejoice in the fact that God is a God of justice, that all wrongs will ultimately be righted, that he cares about justice in the world. But from their perspective, it wasn't coming. From their perspective, it wasn't like how they thought it would be. And so the prophet will move then here in chapter three, starting in verse one. And as he does, we're going to discover tonight three responses, three responses that we should have when God doesn't act the way we think he should when it seems as if God doesn't care, when the world around us seems to be headed different from what scripture says, three responses that we should have in times like this that we can learn from this passage tonight. Verse one of chapter three. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. So we have two messengers here in verse one. First is the messenger who will prepare the way before me. The one who prepares the way for the second messenger to come. This is a reference throughout the Old Testament and other prophetic books, one who was to come before the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse three says this, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And we know if we were just to flip a few pages over in scripture into the New Testament, that this is speaking of the man, John the Baptist. John the Baptist in the gospels, it clearly identifies John the Baptist as the one who prepares the way for the Messiah to come. In Matthew chapter 3, for instance, it says this. 
In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his, his paths straight. So this first messenger is to be John the Baptist. So who then is the second messenger who will come? The one who is identified as the Lord. The one who is to be the messenger of the covenant in whom God delights. Well, that is clearly the Messiah himself. The Messiah is who it's speaking of. He's going to be the Lord. Which some scholars say this may be the most clear instance in the Old Testament that the Messiah to come had divinity. That it wasn't just a man sent from God, but it was going to be God himself who would come among his people. That God would send this messenger as well. And we see in the Gospel of John, one of the titles that Jesus constantly refers to himself as is one who is sent by God. So as the people were surrounded by injustice, frustrated with what God was doing, The first response that the prophet called the people to and the response that he calls us to today is this, is to look for Jesus. To look to Jesus. He says, yes, where you live right now may not be ideal. What's going on isn't what God all wants it to be. But first, cast your attention to the Messiah. If we ever doubted that God cares about us, cares about our pain, cares about our suffering, if we've ever doubted that God cares about the world in which we live, our first response should be to look to Jesus. Now see, the prophets, from their perspective in history, looked forward, right? They were looking forward to Jesus's coming, which is why often if you read through the Old Testament and the prophetic books, you'll find very close to each other prophecies of Jesus's first and second coming. Because from their perspective, it was just all in the future. And so they were looking forward to the coming of a Messiah and what he would do for his people. But for you and for me, where we find ourselves in history is we look two ways when we look to Jesus. First, we can look back. Right? Because we stand on the other side of Jesus' first coming. That we can look back at what he first came to do in the life he lived and who he was. And when we think of this question specifically that verse 17 ended with, where is the God of justice? When we think of the justice of God and then we look to Jesus, our eyes should be immediately drawn to Jesus on the cross. See, the cross is the ultimate display that justice is served by God. If we ever think that God doesn't take sin seriously, we need only to look at the cross. Because Jesus died, the perfect sacrifice died for you and for me, for sinners, because sin had to be paid for. Justice had to be served and only the perfect one could do it, which is why Jesus was necessary for you and for me. The cross of Jesus Christ is the meeting place of God's love and God's justice. It met there at the cross. And so we can look back at the cross and we can see the God of justice who does indeed punish sins. But for those of us who are Christians, he doesn't punish us. Instead, he punished Jesus for our sins. 
But not only do we look back where we sin in history like the prophets of old, we too also look forward. We look forward because we know that the prophecies of the Old Testament have not all yet been fulfilled. We know that the New Testament also speaks of this Messiah who came but will come again. And as we read through what what his second coming will be like, read through the book of Revelation and 2 Peter and 2 Thessalonians, we read of a God who will come and will restore justice to the world. Who will come and will make all things new. Who will right all wrongs. Who will bring all things under his dominion and under his reign. And so if you're frustrated today with the state of the world, with the state of your life, the first response is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look at what he's done for you. Look at what the cross means for the freedom that you have in your lives. Freedom from the bondage of sin because justice was served on Jesus on the cross. But then look forward to his coming, knowing that justice will again ultimately be served and all wrongs will be righted when Jesus returns for the second time. So the prophet encourages the people to look forward, to look to Jesus. He then continues verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. The prophet here speaks of the day of his coming or what's often referred to in scripture. We're going to look at it, I think, next week or the week after as the day of the Lord, the period of the return of Jesus Christ. And we're given here a few metaphors of what this activity will look like when Jesus returns. First is that he will be like a refiner's fire, a refiner's fire. Now it would have been very common for someone living in Jerusalem in the time of Malachi, that if you were to get up and go around and walk through the marketplaces, it would be very common for you to see men working with metals, that a fire would be underneath and the separation process would be happening. As precious metals such as silver or gold would be put over the fire for purposes of refining it, of taking out the impurities and the imperfections, of separating those from what then would remain afterwards. A very common metaphor that they all would have gotten right away. The next metaphor of a refiner's fire is he also refers to them like a fuller's soap will be his coming. A soap, or we can think of someone or of a device that separates, right, dirt from fabric, that, that cleans clothes, right? That laundry soap is kind of like the instance of which she's talking here. Now, it's a little bit different back then when they were to think of clean clothes. You and I think of clean clothes like, well, I hope I have something clean to wear tomorrow. We do laundry all the time and it doesn't come across as us as any big deal. But for them, when they thought of clean clothes, it's specifically where they were thinking their minds would have been drawn to the clothes that were then pure, which would allow them for ritual cleanliness to approach God in worship. It would have been a purification of the clothes, not just so they didn't smell, but so that the dirt would be separated from the impurities, which then they would be clean and be able to go before and worship God 
himself. So we have these two images. And then right away in verse three, the image of the refiner's fire is switched a little bit for us. Do you see that? It's he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. So first he is the fire himself. And now he's like the artisan there, right? Who is the one doing the refining himself? As we see these metaphors of separation, of purification, of speaking of a God who will come and judge the world, separate out what is right from wrong, pure from what is impure. It reminds us of our second response. Our second response should be this. We should learn from his judgment. Learn from his judgment. The two metaphors here of a refiner's fire and a fuller soap that drive this passage are strong metaphors of separation. And both of them point to one thing, that God's clear goal for his people, what God is up to in his judgments on his people is this, is purification. He wanted to present pure gold, pure silver. He wanted a pure garment, a clean garment. As one scholar says, God's refining of his people always involves a concrete goal or purpose. Something precious will always result from the process. See, when God judges, when God comes and judges, the purpose of it isn't just a random judgment, but the purpose of it for his people is always that we would look more like Jesus. That God's judgment should always separate as we're put under the fire, that it would bring about what's pure in us and take aside anything that does not belong to Jesus. See, the metaphor of God being like fire is all over in Scripture. It's all throughout Scripture that God, from, from very early on, if you think of the burning bush, if you think of God leading the people out of Israel as a pillar of fire, all throughout scripture, God and fire are interconnected. And see, we, we shouldn't think of here when we think of God as a fire of like this, this fire that's blazing out of control that cannot be contained. That's not the imagery here. It's not the imagery of the, the scenes that we see of the wildfires that took place this last year out west where just thousands and thousands of acres are torn apart and decimated by wildfires. But no, it's a very intentional fire. It's a fire for a very specific purpose a refiner's fire is. And that is to separate what doesn't belong from what is pure and what does belong. See, when we are judged by God, when we are put through the fires of this life, God's purpose for us is the purification of our hearts and souls. That as we undergo the fires of this life, that we would come out looking more like Jesus. He wants to separate all that is not pleasing and honoring to him so that all that remains more and more of our hearts and of our lives is what is honoring to him. So don't be discouraged if you find yourself in the fire of life. If you feel like you're in the pressure because it's in those moments, it's in those seasons where we learn that what God is doing amongst his people is he's separating. He's separating out the sin of our hearts. He's exposing those things in our lives so that he would remove them and so that we would be grown in purification to become more and more like Jesus. So his judgments for his people are that they would represent him more, that they would be separated from the sin in their lives. Verse five, 
He says this, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That judgment that he says there in verse five, that is the same word, same root word as the word justice. When it says, where is the God of justice? He says, this is the God of judgment who's coming, a play on the exact same word. And we see here seven sins that God says that he will come down and judge the world for or judge these Israelites for. First is sorcery, which was a common element of the pagan religions of their day. Next was adultery, which we saw last week looking at divorce was an issue amongst the people that God was telling them that they needed to avoid. Next was those who swear falsely or those who put God's name on an oath and then break it, right? Like I I swear upon God that this is true when they are actually lying. They're taking God's name in vain when they do that. But then it starts to shift to an area that you and I maybe wouldn't anticipate if we were making a list of sins that people were to avoid that God would come and judge. Because next it's those who oppress the hired worker and his wages. Those who hire someone and wouldn't pay them the expected amount. Who oppress those who are lower down than they are. Considering Continuing with this theme of oppressing those lower is how one treats next the widow and the fatherless. Or the widow and the orphan. See, to oppress them goes contrary to God, who it says in Deuteronomy that God is the one who defends the orphan and the widow. And these people had not defended them. They had let them go aside. Again, it says those who thrust aside the sojourner or those who had moved there who were helpless in the society. Israel was always to remember where they came from. That they too had been sojourners in a foreign land. And so they were to treat people with the same honor and respect that they would have wanted. And then lastly, which kind of summarizes all of what's come before, is that that they do not fear God. Two weeks ago, we looked at this as it was accused of the priests. That the priests did not fear God. And God says, "I I will cast judgment on those who live lives not fearing me. And so as we look at these things that God is going to come judge, this is by no means to be an exhaustive list, representation of every sin, but probably highlighted some of the key things that were going on to the, in the, to the people, excuse me, in that time that Malachi writes. And it's a reminder to us of our third response. When we see the injustice around us, when we seem like God doesn't care, our third response should be to live justly. To live justly. See, what God says is, is all these people who are getting misjustice now, I will come and I will judge those who are casting injustice upon others, who are not living life how I have called them to live when one is in a covenant relationship with God. What he's saying is this, since God is a God of justice, that should be reflected in his people. Since God is a God of justice and he is the one who will come and judge, his living life of justice should be reflected in how his people, back then it was Israel, now it's his people, you and me, how we live should reflect this God of justice in the world. 
As I was reading this passage and reading the things that it talked about here, my mind was immediately drawn to a parable in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31, I'll just read the whole parable through for us. It says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will truly answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me in. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, as followers of Jesus, our lives are to reflect the character of Jesus. And it's clear in this passage, it's clear in that parable that we read, That when we know what it means to have a relationship with the God of justice, that our lives then become lives of justice in this world. That we speak up, that we minister, that we look out for the least of these in our worlds. See, so often we live lives, as a book written by someone many years ago said, we live lives as Christian atheists. Christian atheists, and the, the subtitle, which I love, we believe in God but we live as if he doesn't exist. And so often that that can be true in our lives. Well, yeah, I believe in God for salvation, but I don't want to live like how he tells me to live. I want to live my own way. But see, transformation of the heart leads to transformed living. When Jesus has transformed our lives, it then leads to a change in how we live our lives. See, we certainly aren't saved by our works This passage is not arguing for it. The passage in Matthew is not saying if you try hard enough, then you will receive salvation. Scripture teaches we are saved by grace of God through faith. That's how we're saved, by grace through faith. But let us not miss the fact. Let us not neglect what the rest of Scripture teaches. Yes, we are not saved by our works. But salvation must lead to works if it is real salvation. Genuine salvation leads to the transformation of our hearts and our lives. A right relationship with God leads to righteous living in our world. 
And so he looks down at the people and he sees there's no righteous living, which was just a reflection of their absence of right relationship with God. When people see our lives, are we a reflection of the righteousness of God in the world? That God is a God of justice in how we live our lives. See, if you're like me, it's like, oh yeah, well, I go to church, Moody Church. We do lots of stuff like that. Like we, we have organizations like we talked about last week who help with, with Karis and, we, you know, as our own orphan and, and those who are in poverty. Yeah, our, our church does that. Yeah, I'm good. See, it can be easy to think just because we're maybe associated with people who do it, then that's true of our lives. But that's not what the passage is calling us to. It's saying that as your life is known, is it a life that speaks up for those who are marginalized, who are oppressed, who are pushed out to the side of society? Are we seeking that, that the gospel transforms our entire hearts and all of our lives? Not just, hey, we go to heaven someday, but our lives ultimately reflect our savior while we're here on earth. See, while we call out for justice, while we look at what's going on around us, it should never stop us from living just lives, from practicing the salvation that God has put in our hearts in the here and in the now. So the people called out, where is the God of justice? And we, we may think that as we look around today, maybe you look at your situation that you find yourself in right now and you think, what? Where is God in this? Where is God? How should I live with everything going around in this world, in this country, in my family, at work? How am I to live? What should our response be? We should look to Jesus. We should learn from his judgments that they are to purify us. And we should live just lives. That our character would reflect the righteous God here in this world. God, we do thank you that you have called us, transformed us, and that we are to be set apart from this world. God, may we learn to look to you in times of confusion and hardship. That we would look upon Jesus, look at the cross, look at his second coming, and live in light of that. God, may our lives be testimonies of your righteousness, the change that you have made in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.